Please uh, open your Bible again at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we're considering verses 16 down to 24 this morning. Uh, We're thinking about motives for mission, motivations for mission. You know the the program, uh, Location, 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 uh, with Kirsty Alsop and Phil Spencer. Uh, Location, 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 the the title uh, simply underlining the fact that uh, in the the eyes of these property experts, uh, you can have the, the finest kind of house, you can have a uh, a very elaborate Victorian villa, but if it's in the wrong location, uh, it will never sell. Uh, if it's beside a sewage treatment work, or if it's in a, a, a place that's overrun with gangs, no matter how uh, posh your house is, you're never going to sell it because it's in the wrong location. Location is so important. Uh, and there's a similar uh, and deeper question that arises when we think of uh, why it is we would want to, to share the good news about Jesus Christ? Where is your motivation for mission located? Where is it located? What will sustain genuine, fruitful disciple-making? When, whenever the, the topic of mission or evangelism or witnessing is, is raised, uh, often it's thought that this is the, the preserve of adrenaline-stoked professionals uh, in any church. You know, there are the enthusiastic few uh, who will be interested in mission. Uh, And because that's the case, everyone else often feels guilty by comparison. Uh, It's easy to acknowledge that, to recognize that, that the church is guilty sometimes of locating uh, our motivation for mission in a sense of duty or a feeling of desperation. Now, neither of these are wrong in themselves. Uh, it is a duty to, to tell other people about the Lord Jesus because we're commanded to. Uh, the Great Commission uh, went out not only to the, the twelve and the disciples, but to all generations of Christians. Uh, we are to tell others. Uh, and true, it is a desperate situation but because people uh, who don't know Jesus are going to hell. And therefore, it is exceedingly urgent. But friends, there must be a deeper, uh, more sustaining, more deeply energizing, satisfying motivation, which will energize, motivate not just a few but the many. Where is that motivation located? Well, it's located in our delight in God. Your delight in God will sustain your desire to tell others about his goodness in a way that nothing else will. And so we're going to be looking at... uh, the joy, the deep joy that we find in God is a source of our desire to tell others about Jesus uh, this morning. The passage has got a very different atmosphere from what's gone before in chapter 10 and chapter 9. Chapter 9, there was a stress on discipleship. There was a stress on how hard it is to be a Christian. Uh, It's not an easy road. There's self-denial involved. Uh, There is a costly discipleship. But, of course, there's another side. 
that we must stress there's a delight, there's a joy in following Jesus. And joy in the Lord is the theme of this section of chapter 10. Uh, Jesus tells us where we shouldn't locate our joy. And he tells us that there are three places where we, we can and we ought to locate our joy. We locate our joy in the grace of God, in the sovereignty of God, and in the revelation of God. Let me say also that, that if you're not a Christian, uh, <coughs> you don't need to tune, tune out because there's something wonderful for you here also this morning. And this wonderful thing is this. What is offered in the gospel is nothing less than Jesus himself. We're not offered in the gospel uh, a magic wand that will transform our lives so that we're happy all the time. Uh, we've got money in our bank and we're freed from sickness. That's not the deal. But you are offered Jesus. And the joy that comes from entering into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which will endure through all the ups and downs of life and into eternity itself. And it is this which will sustain you through life and as a Christian will inspire you to share this experience with other people. Jesus is the gospel. This is the profound uh, truth lying at the back of all that the Lord tells us here this morning. Well, first of all, uh, in, a, in a negative fashion, we're warned uh, by what Jesus says not to find our joy apart from God. The 72 come back and it's a fantastic situation. They're energized by their mission. They are full of it. Uh, there's not a word about how difficult it's been. Uh, there's not a word about how, oh, it's great to be back in your own bed again. There's no word about the tiredness. But there's a lot about how marvelous it has been to see uh, the the minions of Satan, his demonic, his demonic uh, servants being uh, forced to submit to the power of God. Lord, they say, even the demons submit to us in your name. It's one of the great experiences of being a Christian to, to go on mission, to be in a missionary situation where you're nudged out of your comfort zone. When I was a young Christian, it was a great privilege to sign up for some mission uh, activities where I was most definitely nudged out of my comfort zone. And although it did feel uncomfortable at times, they were definitely growing experiences. And that's why it's good, uh, for example, to do the kind of street work that uh, is proposed for Saturday uh, because we put ourselves out of our area of natural comfort and we trust in God. Now, I believe that it is still personal relationships. It's our friendships with people that aren't Christians, which in our day and age are by far the most effective way of sharing your faith. But there's also a principle in the Bible that says, cast your bread in the water. Don't limit yourself to, to one way of making God known. And so when we do uh, forms of outreach uh, which challenge us, which we find testing, uh, we find them to be faith-strengthening times. They're times when we grow in our dependence on the Lord. Jesus rejoices with them. Jesus says, I saw Satan 
fall like lightning from heaven. Satan's defeat is certain, uh, but there are lots of dimensions to his defeat. Satan is defeated on the cross when Jesus bears the sin of his people. He denies Satan uh, his ammunition, and so there's a defeat for Satan on the cross. One day, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. He will be destroyed. Uh, But right now, whenever anyone trusts in Jesus, Satan is dethroned and falls from his perch. It's a wonderful thought. When you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, it was another nail in his coffin. Every time someone believes in Jesus, this word goes out. Satan has fallen again in an individual life. Jesus is glad at their report and he goes on to speak of the power that he's given to his followers. I take the snakes and scorpions to be metaphors for the pictures for the the power of Satan. Satan is going to be disarmed in his ability to uh, attack and paralyze God's followers. They will be given power to trample his kingdom down. Wonderful promises. But they're not the main thing. They're not the main thing. And Jesus has a gentle rebuke to the disciples for locating their joy in something that's not the main thing. However, he says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus isn't saying that they shouldn't be joyful that they've seen spiritual victory. But he is saying, don't locate your joy there. Because that's not the center of uh, what's good about the Christian life. Exhilaration in spiritual power isn't an adequate motivation for evangelism. Find your joy in God and not his gifts. Let your thrill, let your energy come from your enjoyment of God in himself and not from what he can give you. I don't really like telling family stories, but here it goes. Uh, when, uh, when we, uh, a, few, like a number of years back, we had a, a very uh, lovely family friend, she's still a lovely family friend, who was very good to our children. And when they were we. They used to say, we love Morag. She gives us sweeties. <laughs> now, we knew what they meant, but it sounded very mercenary. Of course, we loved her, but not just because she gave sweeties. That was a demonstration of her love. Now, it's the same thing when we look uh, and find our delight in God for his gifts rather than for what he is in himself. If your joy is not in God, then you'll struggle. Uh, you'll struggle to have energy to witness for him. If you're only excited because uh, you had a wonderful experience of, of healing from God or a special spiritual experience, uh, you can make that the center of your affection rather than God himself. You're, you see, you're taking delight in his gifts rather than in himself as the giver of his gifts. If you love God because you're happy as a Christian, or he's given you lots of Christian friends, then what about the times when friends let you down? Or the times when things aren't going well? 
And it's only honest to say, I'm not happy. If your, if your joy is in God, he'll sustain you through these, these periods of, of differing uh, emotions. But not, only, but not if your, your joy is found only in his gifts. Find your joy in God and not in his gifts. What we have in the gospel is a wonderful invitation to enjoy God through Jesus Christ. And as we delight in God, in a wonderful way, we will be caught up in God's movement, which is always outward. We have a God who is, whose love is super abundant so that it, it is always flowing over its bounds, always reaching out to others. Think about what we have been reflecting on in the evenings as we've studied Genesis, as we've considered that God who is eternal created the only being who has always been there, created from nothing, the heavens and the earth, and populated this world with people. It was his first act of, of kindness outside himself. It was reflecting God's desire to, to flow out. And when we're thinking of the creation, there's that wonderful wee word, glory. That God shows his glory in his works. And glory in the Bible uh, is associated with light, uh, a shining out from God of his being so that people know what he's like, so that he's imparting knowledge of his wonderful nature to things outside himself. So when Ezekiel sees a vision, a vision of the temple of God, it's filled with the glory of God, the shining out of God. And when God sends his son to earth uh, and tells the shepherds about it, we're told the glory of the Lord shone all around God loves to, to shine forth. God spills over into all he has made. And he does that when people are saved. Paul likens our coming to faith in Jesus to the sending out of light at the beginning of the world. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as we find our delight in God, in a deep communion with God, a deeply satisfying friendship with God, we find ourselves involved in a movement out to others. And that's driven by God himself rather than his gifts. So in this little section, we find Jesus pointing us to delight in God in three different ways. Uh, delight in his grace, delight in his sovereignty, delight in his revelation. Jesus tells him not to delight in uh, exhilarating spiritual experiences, but to delight themselves in his grace. Boy, don't we need to hear that in our day. There's an enormous appetite out there in the world for uh, signs and wonders, unexplained phenomena and so on. Now, 
Our God is a supernatural God and will work in supernatural ways. But to focus on these things is to miss the point. What we should marvel at, Jesus says, is the grace of God. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the amazing thing. That your name, that my name is written in a book. The Bible calls the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you're trusting Christ for salvation, your name is in it. You have a home in heaven. And it's because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. It's because of a finished work. God has not said, well, let's see how things go. Uh, If you do well, you'll have a home in heaven. If not, uh, if you don't match the mark, then it's too bad. Right now, Jesus says to disciples, your names are written in heaven. Let's never get over the grace of God. It is amazing grace. We did nothing to deserve his goodness. We were worthy of the opposite treatment. We lived for self. We resisted God. We were proud, defiant, presumptuous. We were little tin pot generals thinking we ruled the world. The world exists for me and my pleasure. That's the way we thought and operated. And then God did for us what we couldn't do. He took the blindfold off. He granted to us uh, to not only understand but to receive salvation. He had provided a way to deal with our sin and to still show us mercy. Last week, or was it the week before, there was a lot of heated reaction to the Scottish government's uh, decision to write off uh, some 25-year-old poll tax debts. Uh, which became traceable because of people uh, registering for the referendum. And there was appreciation in some quarters and there was indignation in others. Uh, Some of the loudest complaints were from the leaders of councils who were poised to take action to recover the debts. Now, I don't want to make any political judgment, but simply to say that the reaction of councils is a reminder that when debt is cancelled, there is always a cost Someone has to bear the cost of a cancelled debt. When you forgive someone, rather than take vengeance, what you're doing is you're absorbing the hurt yourself. When you pay off a debt, you bear the cost yourself. When God wiped the slate clean for you and for me, there was a cost to that. And the cost was nothing less than his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the debt I could not pay, that I might become a citizen of heaven. And there is a book of citizenship with my name written in it, along with all who trust in Jesus Christ. And that, Jesus says, is something Worth getting excited about his grace that he should reach down to me, to you, and make of us who once were rebels citizens of the heavenly kingdom. What a wonderful God! What amazing grace, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing grace, 
wonderful sovereignty. What do we mean by that? Sovereignty, it's a kind of church word. Sovereignty means simply this. God is the king. And kings are free to do what they will. They don't need to answer to you or me. God is the king. God is, think about it. God is justified, really, in sending everyone to hell. Condemning everyone. What has anyone done that comes anywhere near the perfect life that's required for heaven? God, if he was to act in justice, really, would, would consign all of humanity to hell. But God, in his mercy, chooses to save some. And no one can force his hand or tell him what he must do. And Jesus... Uh, reflecting on this uh, and it's the Holy Spirit's influence that causes him both to to meditate on it and find joy in it and he says I praise you Father Lord of heaven and earth because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children yes Father for this was your good pleasure it's wonderful isn't it that little expression it's your good pleasure There is nothing that can explain why God chooses to turn the light on in some lives and not others, but the good pleasure of God. It certainly can't be understood by some people being better, smarter, more worthy, more deserving than others. It's simply your good pleasure. Jesus ponders why it is that the wise and the sophisticated the, the ones who are way up there in the world's estimation, who've, who've got right up to the top of the career ladder, who have all the, the, the degrees after their names and so on, why they so often fail to come and believe, who are not given a grasp of spiritual truth, where it's others who are like little children, like the, the dear kids that we have at the front of the church on the Sunday morning, It's them and those like them to whom Jesus becomes real. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world To shame the strong. And then Paul tells us why God chooses to do this. So that no one may boast before him. That sovereign grace means God gets all the glory. If I could say, if I could kind of point to to even one uh, reason uh, why I am a Christian. Then I would be sneaking in and and, and shaming uh, part of my salvation and I'd be robbing God of part of his glory oh well God God did 99% of it but uh, it was me who after a long struggle decided to, to, to believe and so part of it really is down to me if I was to look at my salvation like that I would be robbing God of his glory and God is the one who has declared my glory I will share with none other sovereign grace preserves God's glory. 
we were devising a scheme uh, for dethroning Satan, sending him crashing to the ground like lightning. Uh, we would probably have a, an advertising campaign if we were just thinking with worldly wisdom. We would have an advertising campaign that said, you know, God is looking for smart people to change the world and defeat Satan. Apply here if you have a high IQ and a good CV. That's the worldly way of thinking. And sadly, sometimes the, the church does behave in a worldly way and thinks that, you know, if we're going to uh, win the country for Christ, then we have to uh, put all our effort into the universities and into the leafy suburbs where the wealthy are. But Jesus has the reverse strategy. Uh, Jesus went to the poor and to the dispossessed. And he declared that it was people like little children uh, who were the models of the kingdom. Jesus goes on in verse 22 to expand on, on this privilege, uh, privilege of, of knowing him. There's a, a depth to the son that is only known by the father. All things have been committed to me by my father. Jesus has the supreme place. All of the riches of God are, are found in him. Uh, the father and the son, he says, are in this, this relationship where the one knows the other. And Jesus is saying it's, it's so foolish to think that you can, by human inquiry, by scientific endeavor, by philosophy, try to discover God. He can't be known in that way. There's a, a myth, I think it is a myth actually, that Yuri Gagarin, the first Soviet cosmonaut, when he was up uh, in space, said, uh, I've been searching and there is no God up here. As I said, it probably didn't say that, but it would have been such a foolish thing to have said because it would have reflected the view uh, that by exploration, by man's endeavour, it would be possible to know God. The only way to know God is through the Son. And he reveals the Father to those he chooses. It's his good pleasure. What a wonderful thing is God's sovereignty. Here we are, <laughs> motley crew, people of all kinds of, of uh, shapes and sizes, walks of life. God is pleased to bring to himself unlikely candidates that he might be glorified in it all. Wonderful. Wonderful to think on this uh, even before you're a Christian, if, because if you're not a Christian, then sometimes you might think, well, they have what I haven't got. They must be smarter than I am, or they must be endowed with some kind of a spiritual switch in their personality. And that's all wrong, because it's all of God. And he comes and he brings himself to those he chooses. And sometimes, most often, in fact, it's the most unlikely people. So the fact that God is free and the fact that his grace is bestowed in whom he, he wills means that we can't boast. No one can say he's just the kind of person good enough to be a Christian. God chooses bad people and makes them good. No one can say he's the kind of person smart enough to get the gospel. God chooses the uneducated and the simple and turns the light on in their understanding. God's method means that he gets the glory. God's method means that Salvation is all his work. 
The Bible tells us that before we were Christians, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people don't walk. Dead people don't uh, believe in their own accord. The reason you're saved, if it lies even in a small part in your own work, salvation is no longer all of God. It's part God and part you. The free grace of God means that we've got a proper perspective when we come into worship. If our salvation is all of God, God is great and we are small. That's the best place to be. That's the safe place to be. That's the Bible perspective on how we relate to God. And the smaller we understand ourselves, the healthier for us. And the greater our God is, the healthier for us. And under the sweet influence of the Holy Spirit, this meditation on the sovereignty of God becomes sweet to our taste. This is the only occasion, I think, that we're we're told that Jesus rejoiced. That's striking. That he rejoiced reflecting on the free grace of God, the sovereignty of God. I wonder if, if that doctrine does it for you. Does it delight you? Does it delight your soul? Don't be too discouraged if it doesn't yet. Because I think... Uh, most of us struggle with this because we want to assert man's part and we want to do it very strongly. And some of the great giants, uh, the folks that we, we really admire and look up to, uh, think that, uh, look back and, and they, they see times when they struggled with it in their past. Even the great Jonathan Edwards, in his personal narrative, Edwards was a, a, a notable preacher in revival in New England, and he acknowledged that. Uh, as a young Christian, he, he struggled with the doctrine of, of the sovereignty of God. But as he grew as a Christian, Edward said, he not only became convinced of it, but uh, he became convinced of its beauty. And this is what he said, I've often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, Sweet, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. Grace, sovereignty, God's revelation in Jesus. Very briefly. The third way to nurture your joy in God is to reflect on how wonderful it is that you know Jesus, that you are one, that you are living at the point in history when we know God in the face of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear. What did these people not see? It's rather who? Did they not see? They didn't see Jesus. Prophets and priests and kings, they had all been signposts to the one who would come. They were telling us what what Jesus would be like. He'd be like a prophet. He would bring a word from God, a revelation. He would be like a king. He would rule in in a new way over a new kingdom. He would be a priest. He would bring us to God. 
But all these people never saw Jesus. Even John the Baptist died before the cross. He was the last of of the, the old economy. But Jesus is saying, you folks are so privileged because the time has dawned on you. The Messiah is here. I am the Messiah. Your eyes are seeing what people before you longed to see. How precious it is for us to know Jesus. To think that you're actually more privileged than Moses. (laughs) Or Elijah. They longed, they strained as they looked forward. But Jesus is revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. We meet with him. We have the record of his life and ministry, his atoning death on the cross. It's wonderful how blessed you are to know him. And this, friends, brothers and sisters, this is how we nurture our joy in God, reflecting on his grace, reflecting on his sovereignty, and reflecting on the fact that God has revealed himself to us in Jesus who's the fairest of 10,000, the lover of our souls, our captain, our priest, our warrior prince. And it's the Holy Spirit's work to make us happy in God and to fire us for mission. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, once said that a Christian singing God's praises to the world is like a bird singing Birds sing loudest, he said, when the sun rises and warms them. And so it is with Christians. As we put down deep roots in God, the Spirit warms our hearts. He makes us love God more. And we find that in the dark morning of the world, we are warmed by the light of the world and by the love of God in Christ. And that's when we sing loudest. The knowledge of the grace of this sovereign God who has revealed himself in Jesus warms our hearts so that we want not only to delight in him, but we want others to delight in him. And so our delight overflows in the most powerful and sustainable and wonderful way. And so the Lord encourages us this morning to think much on these things our heavenly father we pray that in our own hearts there might bubble uh, up this joy and delight in you that Jesus in this wonderfully intimate insight into his experience uh, knew we pray Lord that our communion with you would be so real and deep that our joy would be so full that we would not be able to contain it, but would want to share all that you have done for us with others, so that in their coming to know you, our joy might be full. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.